You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're talking the language of leadership. Wendy Bourne is a leadership coach, facilitator, and speaker, and she thinks that many of the challenges that exist within leadership can be overcome by mastering the languages of leadership. What are those languages? How do we master them? Well, she's right here to tell you all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Wendy Bourne. Wendy Bourne, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to have you, Wendy. Now, look, you've released a book, you are doing lots of speaking, you run lots of programs, and like so many topics, your your topic is right in the sweet spot of this podcast. I mean, you speak very specifically about leadership, and I love your angle about the languages of leadership, the way we speak and communicate, and what that says about us as leaders. So I really like it because it's so direct for us, and, and I think our listeners will get a lot out of this conversation. You talk about the fact that many of the challenges that exist within leadership can be overcome by mastering the languages of leadership. I love it. It's mm-hmm. it's beautiful mm-hmm. thought. It's very simple and, and elegant all in the, the same time. Tell us what you mean by what by that. What are the languages of leadership? Mm-hmm. So over the years, I have found that leadership is such a broad, broad term and we all know what leadership is, or, or sorry, we, we all think we know what leadership is, but it's really hard to kind of define it in words and actions. But goodness, when we see it, we know it. You know, you only need to think about Jacinda Ardern, you know, the way she behaved in the wake of the terrorist attack. You know, she was clearly stood up and led, she was courageous she was vulnerable, she was strong. So we can see it. When we see it, we know it. But when we want to put wrap words around it, it's really hard to define. So over the years, I've found that people know that they need to be good leaders, but they don't necessarily know how to do it. And it's when writing the book and the languages of leadership, I've defined it down to six core concepts, uh, and they are courage and strength, being engineering, so using your environment to the best that you can, and abdicating, so standing back and letting people stand forward, trust and vulnerability. So they're the six core languages. And I've tried to make it practical and logical and sensible, giving lots of tools and techniques to show you how to be a good leader. So it's very much around the how. So we're going to talk through each of those in, in a little while. Mm-hmm. That'll be the, the main takeaway for our listeners, I guess. But yeah. I, I love talking with people like yourself just about leadership generally. And I really like the example that you gave. I, I'll tell anyone that listens at the moment that I would move to New Zealand in a second if, yeah. if the, the right kind of opportunity came up. Not only do they have a rugby team worth admiring and, and always have, <laughs> I love the way their cricketers yeah, play cricket one-day team. cricket yeah. especially, yeah. but- you know, but more than anything else, they have 
probably the most impressive world leader running their country at the moment. Mm. So you, like me, I'm sure, uh, can't help but switch off your professional knowledge and your professional lens when you're observing the, the world around you. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about what you admire in the leadership of Jacinda Ardern and, and tell us about what you notice in leadership in our country and, and across the globe generally, mm. the good and the bad. What kind of observations are you making at the moment? I think the leaders like Jacinda Ardern, they're not afraid to show who they really are. And, you know, she, and also when faced with an opportunity, when they need to step into leading and showing the way when things are scary for people and times are uncertain, she didn't hesitate. And so that vulnerability in particular, you know, it's it's hard to show people who you really are. And I find in Australia, particularly in Australian politics, it's very much around they try to please everybody and they try to be a certain way and and behave and say the right things. But you can't always say the right things. You know, I, I can guarantee you that the gun policy that Jacinda Ardern put in place probably pleased, you know, 75% of the population, but there's bound to be 25% that didn't. But she knows she's not going to please everybody, but in the interest and the good of the country, she forged ahead and, and she did it. You know, and it's making those tough decisions, being strong in your decision making, being courageous and, you know, showing the way forward for those that follow you is critical to being a good leader. And I just don't see that, you know, in a lot of countries, sadly. It's interesting you say that she knows that she's not going to please people. You know, if you think about some of the events that have impressed us with her or, or impressed mm. some of us at least, you know, mm. the way she managed being pregnant in office and, and having a child oh, yeah. while in office, the way she managed yeah. the terrible events of, that, of the shootings mm. in New Zealand and the gun buyback, mm. the mm. way she has engaged with Australia and, and continued mm. the New Zealand's longstanding offer to take some of our refugees off Manus mm. Island and Nauru. Yeah. All of those things to me are impressive and I like them, mm. but there is absolutely no doubt that there are a lot of people who are fuming over some of those things and she's mm. copped enormous criticism for mm -hmm. each of those things that I've just described, not mm. least of which, of course, is the gun buybacks. So, because why yeah. gun buybacks seem rational and logical to uh, the vast majority of us, there is mm. a minority within mm -hmm. every community that is fiercely against having any type of restrictions around the weapons they can own, um, yes. which even sounds funny to say. So while she seems so sparkling to a lot of us, there, there are her, she has her critics Mm. Are you suggesting that here in Australia, one of the things, because there, there are very few impressive leaders here in Australia at a political level, we've talked about that on the podcast before, yeah. is it because they just don't know who they're appealing to? They're trying to appeal to everyone and therefore, mm. in, a, in a lot of ways, really appealing to no one? Yes. And yes, I think that they, you know, they, it's like they're, they grow up in the political landscapes and they know that you know, that's how it's always people, politicians have always behaved. So that's the way they have to behave. Nobody to me is strong enough to do something different, you know, and I just think, you know, when somebody does do something different in another country and takes a hard line, you know, stands up for what they believe in, you know, it sticks in our memory like, like glue, but we just don't see that. We see all of the same old stuff. 
nobody's doing anything differently. And then on the other side of it, we seem to have this concerning part of society that's coming where, you know, if somebody does stand up and do something different, we feel as though we have to, you know, crucify them or label them as, you know, racist or, you know, a bigot or, you know, anything, anything that we can kind of label and put people into box if they try and raise a difficult conversation or do something that's kind of not within the norm. Does that make sense? It does. And and I think maybe we we can add some more to this as Mm. we go through each of your three domains and and the six behaviours of leadership, because I'd love to hear what you, you know, when we talk about these and describe them, what you're seeing around you, because of course, political leadership is not the only one, but it's the one that we all have in common. We all have different bosses at work. We all have different leaders in our life, but those Mm. politicians that we all see is the thing that we have in common. And it's kind of nice Mm. to assess them against these principles of leadership that we have. Yeah, uh, you know, and and I, I just want to make the point here: something that I truly do believe. It's it's easy to bag Australian politicians, and it does seem like in through my adult life we have built towards this real kind of zero sum game in Australian politics. This awkward kind of messy, you know, polarized opinion. Mm. But the the truth is that we get the governments that we deserve, and if Australians were demanding you know, all of the things that I think Australians should be demanding. That's what politicians would do because they just want to get elected. They will just do what they think the public wants so they can get Mm. their job back. So clearly Mm. what we're seeing from our politicians at the moment is what they think we want because that's what they'll give us. And, And as frustrating as our political leaders can be, I think we as the voting public, we as the thinking, talking, communicating public need to take mm-hmm. a lot of responsibility for what we get at a political leadership level because that's what we're demanding. But anyway, we'll talk about that as we go through. Yeah. Hey, one of the points that you make early in your book I, I really like, we don't just lead one team. Let's go back to thinking about work. Mm-hmm. It's not that neat in organizations. We can we can talk about leadership if we want, If you know, pretending that I'm a boss, I have five people who report to me or 10 or 12 or 20, and mm-hmm. my job is to lead them and show them a vision and motivate them towards a vision and develop my people, that's Mm. complex enough. Mm. But the fact is we don't live in organizations like that. I can't remember the last time I worked in an organization where everyone just had one team and one manager and it was all very simple and neat and tidy. We Mm. are all members of multiple teams and the leadership dynamic is is like a spider's web, not like Mm -hmm. a neat hierarchy or org chart anymore. Yeah. Absolutely true. And, you know, as as leaders, we're part of a team, which is our peers, and then we have our own team. And then, but you can't, you're right, you can't operate in a silo. You know, we need to be able to influence much broader than our own team. And the best way to do that is to have good, solid relationships with a broad network, because you need to, you need to influence without authority in a lot of instances. And, you know, that involves your peers, involves your boss, and involves other people across the organisation if you want to get anything done. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. All right, let's talk through these three domains of leadership. I want you to bring them to life for us with the the behaviors that the two behaviors that sit within each of the three domains. Yeah. Um, I will I will write all this down in the show notes of the podcast if you want to see this on paper. If you're a 
a visual person. And then through that, I try and bring it to life for us, Wendy. Give us some examples of what you've seen at its best and at its worst. And I would also love you to talk us through the roadblocks that we might experience as leaders trying to develop these particular skills or behaviors. So let's start with number one. I am an active leader. What sits behind that? Yeah. So active is about being courageous and being strong. And, you know, courage, well, we start with courage. It's a scary thing to be courageous. And, you know, I look at, you know, Mac Horton. I mean, it was an absolutely courageous thing for him to stand up and, and make that protest in front of a world stage. You know, the man is just incredible for his courage alone. And then the strength, strength is the next component of active leadership, having the strength to actually stand by your decision to actually be courageous. And, you know, he, he to me, he was a, the most recent example that I can think of where he, he displayed those two characteristics of, of active leadership and, and he did it admirably. For our listeners who don't know what Wendy's talking about there with Mac Horton, the, the recent World Championships of Swimming, Mac Horton was swimming in the 400 metres freestyle against someone he he suspects of being a drug cheat, someone who has been found guilty of of drugs before and has been banned, but came and, and, and has served out that band, but came into this world championships with a massive cloud hanging over them because they had smashed vials of blood after they were mm-hmm. tested just before the world championships. And FINA, the world governing body of swimming, put off his kind of adjudication until after the world championships. So Mac Horton came second to this Chinese swimmer in the 400. And then when it came to standing on the dais afterwards and listening to the national anthems, Mac Horton refused to get up on the dais and stand next to the winner for the photos. It was his silent protest. But of course, we know Mm. that that kind of blew up in Mac Horton's face because Mm. while that was happening, Swimming Mm. Australia had its own very dirty little secret, and that was that Shana Jack had tested positive. She, of course, says mm. that she will fight that and she doesn't ha- know how the drug got in her system. But mm. but Australia swim- Swimming was sitting on that and they were watching one of their highest profile swimmers, a, a, an Olympic gold medalist, make this stand in front of the world knowing it would get all of this publicity. But mm. they had this secret where Australia wasn't exactly as clean as they, they pretended to be. Now, mm. you're saying that that was a courageous thing to do and I completely agree. And And he showed that strength of standing by it. After the news came out about the Australian swimmer, he stood by his protest. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, to me, you know, the subsequent outing of Shane and Jack, to me, that's absolutely no reflection on Mark Horton. You know, no. he, to me, that it's two separate instances. And I think the shame in that sits with Swimming Australia for, you know, I guess not dealing with this or, you know, I don't know, I guess they could have handled it. I mean, there's many different ways that you can handle many different situations. And to me, they didn't handle that particularly well. But, you know, still my opinion of Mac Horton is lessened none yeah. because, you know, he's, he was courageous and he was strong and he stands by it and, and he still will today regardless of, of any outcome, I suspect. He was kind of hung out to dry, and I completely agree with you. Those two incidents are, are not related. He he remains strong, but it just gave – because what he did was so courageous, 
you know, mm. that of course comes with being somewhat controversial. And it just mm. gave the naysayers, it gave his critics as something to be critical of him with. It gave them a bit of yes. ammunition. All right. Well, that's what it looks like when you're swimming at the world championships and it's that very high profile stage. What does yeah. courageous and strong leadership look like every day in the workplace? Well, it's calling out bad behaviours. So, you know, organisations have values that they develop and they roll out across their organisations and, you know, we're all expected to live those values. But, you know, how often do we, you know, go to a meeting and see people behave inappropriately but we just don't call it out? You know, I, I worked with a leader once who were in a meeting and somebody else in the meeting said something that just wasn't supportive or wasn't positive but wasn't in the best interests of, of what the leader was trying to achieve. And he said to him, you know, I'm, I'm going to call you out there. This is, you know, not helping the situation. Yes, if you want to raise issues, that's absolutely fine, but not to the detriment or to the derogatory of any other person or situation. We need to raise issues in a constructive way. And I thought that was just brilliant that, you know, he was courageous enough to actually call it out and, you know, strong enough as well to stand by what he believed in, which was, you know, he's not a clear example to him of living the values of the organisation. And you gave a very good example because there's courage and strength that it comes in the form of of talking about the quality of the work as well. And, and that mm. sometimes can even be hard as a leader to call out. But because it's subjective and tangible and we mm. can all see it, I think mm. leaders are a little bit more likely to be courageous and strong when it comes to calling out quality of work or deadlines mm. not met or yeah. those type of things. But it's those soft intangibles, the cultural stuff, the behavior that we all know have a huge mm. impact, positive or negative, on a workplace that yeah. are a little more difficult for a leader to address because of mm. their intangibility. So courageous mm. leaders won't sit by and and watch behavior that might erode the culture of their team. They're going to call it out and they're going to mm -hmm. stand by what they value. Fantastic. So I am yeah. an active leader. I am courageous mm -hmm. and I am strong. The second domain mm -hmm. is I am a directive leader. Tell us about that, Wendy. Yeah. So directive leadership is about two concepts. The first one I call engineering uh, or being an engineer of your environment. And that's about using the situation or the circumstance to for good, not evil, and changing things around in your environment to get a, a better outcome. And the second one is uh, what I call abdication. And that's about taking an opportunity to stand back and let your people stand forward or take the credit or, you know, for the, responsibility. In the interest, yeah, responsibility in the interest of the greater picture, the bigger picture. So tell me more about engineering the world around me. What does that look like for a leader? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. I had someone who had read my book the other day say to me that she had an employee who she was just struggling with. And so she took her for a walk around the park at lunchtime and she spoke to her about, you know, that she felt that this girl wasn't achieving the best that she could possibly do. And this girl really opened up to her and said, you know, my confidence is down, I'm struggling with the work that I'm doing. And the 
woman who was telling me the story was telling me that all these barriers seemed to kind of fall away and they were they were walking along as equals, not employee and boss. And she said it was one of the best conversations that she had ever had with any employee. And so what she's done is she's used her environment to change the dynamic. And, you know, neurologically, it's shown that when people walk side by side, particularly a boss and a peer, the hierarchy disappears. So, you know, if you want to influence your boss, take him for a walking meeting is my advice. You know what? It's so funny you say that. I heard that exact same story less than a week ago from a client who was talking about someone on their team who does a great job, but is very a very closed book. They know very little Mm -hmm. about them. They don't know what their goals are. They don't know what what's happening in their life. And they went for the first time they've ever walked somewhere together. And mm. within that 10-minute walk, he learned more about him, more about his history and his career aspirations and everything to do with him than he'd learned mm. in two years of having him on his team. It's wow. just an amazing thing, isn't it? And we, we oh. know, it, you know, walking meetings, I love the concept, but you know what scares me, Wendy, is that they will become another cliche. You know, when we we kind of systematize Mm. things that are effective, like quarterly reviews. You know, quarterly reviews Mm. are a a fantastic concept done because leaders should have regular conversations about performance with their staff, Mm. with their team. Mm. But we know Mm -hmm. that leaders won't do that, so we systematize Mm. it. And by Mm -hmm. systematizing it, it takes away all the beauty and the color and what's real about it. And that's yeah. my fear about walking meetings. They're, they're almost becoming, I mean, they're only just catching on and it's early yes. adopters who are doing them now. But you know soon this will appear in a piece of advice in an HR <laughs> manual in large organizations that X percentage yeah. of your meetings should be walking meetings. So then people will go through the motions of doing walking meetings and the mm. beauty of it will be sucked out. I'm such a cynic, aren't <laughs> I? I? But, but, it, but it's, you know, I, I love that. I, I love that mm. example of engineering the world around us. Give mm. me one more example. The walking meeting, I buy yeah. it completely. What's another example yeah. of changing or engineering the world around me? Yeah, so I recall a, a client who had an office, so she used to sit beside behind her office and in her office behind her desk and you know, people used to come in and sit at her desk and try and have a conversation with her, but she was always distracted by what is was on her computer screen. So she she wasn't 100% present in the conversation. So she got a small table and chairs off to the side, and whenever people came into her, she would deliberately get up from her desk move over to the the table and chairs and have the conversation there because she wasn't distracted. And, you know, people felt that they were having better quality conversations with her. So, you know, a simple change like that to your environment can have such a big impact on the quality of the conversation, which impacts the quality of the relationship that you have. You know, Wendy, my wife and I are really into billions at the moment. Have you ever watched Billions on stand? No. So it's about a billionaire, and the the main character is a real is a horror. I I really dislike him. I would dislike him as a human being if I ever met him. But I think Uh he's supposed to be like that. But he's a real power power guy. You know, he's made billions of dollars. He thinks he's pretty amazing. He's very smart, and he applies it in a way that's completely selfish. But he Mm -hmm. he knows about all of those kind of stuff. That all of that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, and he uses it only to his advantage. So Mm -hmm. he has his 
The episode we were watching last night, he had his yearly review meetings with his staff where they negotiate their bonus. And these guys are mm-hmm. talking in the millions. That's their bonus. And he mm. sits behind his desk. He's the big boss in the big chair. And he just intimidates them down. They think they're worth a certain amount. And he just intimidates them down. But there's this one employee who he really values, and their name is Taylor, and they have an undefined gender, which is a really lovely mm-hmm. part of the story. And <laughs> Taylor came in, and Bobby Axelrod, who is super hyper aware of all of these dynamics, got up out of his chair and came and sat beside her on the two chairs that were facing his main big boss chair. And he turned okay. his chair around to face mm-hmm. her and lent into her. He, he lent down and into her mm. because he wanted this to work. He wanted to yeah. her to walk away feeling comfortable, not intimidated, mm. which was mm-hmm. his goal with the rest of his staff. I love yeah. that. And Bobby Axelrod is a study in all of this leadership awareness. He knows it all but mm. uses it to his advantage only, not to the advantage of the people around him. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, I it's got to have good intention as far as I'm concerned. You know, you can't. It's great on a TV show, but please don't intimidate your staff. Deliberately. <laughs> from, from we know, we know people do that. We, yeah. Most people aren't as horrible as Bobby Axelrod, but most people do know about power mm. positions. People have a kind of uh, an innate understanding of that, and we've all been in position in situations where people have used that to their advantage in, in one yeah. form or another. All right, so the the other one underneath directive leader was that I abdicate power to others. Tell me about that. Yeah, so this is about letting go of your need for control. You know, I often say to clients that empowering your people is 50% them owning it and 50% you letting go. And until you let go of the outcome that you want and understand that, you know, Five and five makes 10, but so does eight and two and seven and three. So it doesn't really matter how you get there. As long as you get to 10, you know, then you you get a good outcome. And it's the same with empowering your people, letting go, stepping back and letting them step in and owning, you know, what they need to do is all about abdicating. This is a really interesting one. It's a complex one. It's a difficult one for leaders and it's a difficult one for staff. I remember early in my days as in, in an engagement as a consultant, I was working for the senior leader and I was, I was sort of moving between the senior leader and the, the group of, of senior managers that they lead. Mm. And mm. I went into this group of senior managers trying to work out this new big, massive program that they were supposed to deliver. And this mm. was their planning. They were supposed to be getting down and dirty with the planning. And all mm. they could talk about was what leader X wanted. I wonder what she wants. We wonder what she wants. We need to ask her what we want, mm. what she wants. And I kind of made a clue to say, hey, she's told you what she wants. She's given you a picture of the outcome and she wants you to mm. fill in the gap. She has empowered you to mm. create this stuff. You're the expert. Mm. You know more about it than she does anyway because this yeah. is your area. But they yeah. didn't get that leader X had actually abdicated power to them and said mm-hmm. to them, hey, this is the general strategic direction. You fill yeah. in the gaps. They It just mm. didn't occur to them that that could happen. Mm. Now, maybe mm. Leader X could have been more clear about mm. what they were doing and just been really clear about, hey, I'm not going to fill in the, the blanks for you here. That's mm. your job to do. I just want mm. this outcome. Maybe there mm. was a miscommunication. But I think yeah. 
we're so used to taking direction and we feel mm-hmm. much safer when we're given really clear directions that we mm. can just sort of follow the steps, mm. follow the, mm. the, the bouncing ball. Whereas mm. the more senior we become in our career, the more experience we have, I guess we're mm. expected to take ownership of issues. And you know, as a leader, and I know as a leader, someone on your team who you can just sort of paint an outcome to and mm. develop that outcome together. And you know mm. that they will then go away and fill in all the gaps and make the decisions mm. and jump all the obstacles to get mm. it done. They're the people that mm. you really value. It's mm. the people who want one-on-one every step of the way direction. They kind of pin themselves at a certain level, don't they? They're not going to rise any further above where they are if they can't make that leap. Yeah. And, you know, I see, I often see in organizations, you know, leaders get into the habit of giving the answers, you know, mm. they, and, and there's neurologically, there's a reason for that. Because when somebody comes to us with a problem and we provide them with the solution, we get a really nice shot of dopamine and oxytocin, which makes us feel important and valued. But what we're doing is setting our people up to not think for themselves and not be empowered. Because we, we get addicted to, to having the answers. And so we need to kind of get over that and step away and realize that it's not about me and my career and how good I feel. This is about the development of our people and helping them to step in and become better leaders themselves. I did a fantastic podcast with someone just a little while ago, all about this concept, the concept of leaders who ask. And I'm, I'm oh, yeah. actually just trying to find it right now. Leaders who ask mm. questions, Corinne Armour. We, mm. we talked about the fact that there's something that happens to you neurologically when someone asks you a question instead mm-hmm. of giving you the answer. And it's it's just that little little switch that you can make as a leader. You, mm. you put a really, really interesting spin on it. It actually makes us feel good as a leader. I hadn't mm. really pondered that so much. But what mm-hmm. it does to the follower is it kind of disempowers them. It says, you're just a doer here, here, do this. Yeah. But if you flick it around and just say, hey, what do you think? What do yeah. you think you should do? What are the important elements at play here? What does our strategic yeah. direction suggest would be the right answer for this mm. question? Mm. You're just turning a 30-second conversation into a two-minute conversation. It doesn't necessarily take that much longer. And you mm-hmm. don't have to do it in big chunks. It can just be little no. conversations at a time. But it's a really powerful thing for a leader to be aware of. And I yeah. like the fact that you've brought us back around to that, the the power of asking questions. And, mm. and as you said, it, it sits within within your abdicating power to others yeah. under Absolutely. I am a directive leader. So we've talked about mm-hmm. I am an active leader, which is being courageous mm-hmm. and strong. We've mm-hmm. talked about I am a directive leader, which is engineering the world around me and abdicating power to others. And mm-hmm. the third domain is I'm a perceptive leader. What are the behaviours mm. in there, Wendy? Yeah, so perceptive leader is about trust and this is about I trust and I am trusted. So it's it's a two-way trust and then vulnerability. So I can be vulnerable if I need to and that helps me to make better connections with the people that I lead and that I work with and that you know I work for. So do you want me to go into each one? Absolutely, please. Yeah. Okay. So trust, to me, trust is the foundation of every relationship that we have, whether it's personal or professional. If you don't have foundation of trust, you're never going to reach the potential that could in the relationship or or even an organization or a team. 
that underlying foundation of trust enables a team to be far more effective than what it is if they don't. And, you know, there's been studies done around trust linking positively to a positive correlation between trust and productivity, you know, effectiveness, bottom line, so dollars. You know, there's so much evidence to support having trust in relationships and organisations and yet it continues to be so elusive, which is so sad. Patrick Lencioni, one of my favourite authors, mm. said something really simple and beautiful once in, in one of his books. The best way to create trust is to be trustworthy. Yeah. And that's nice and simple and we can all relate to that. We all value mm. trust. We get how, mm. how important trust is. Mm. And all we have to do to get it, to get trust between you and me and the whole team, is to mm. act in a trustworthy way. And that doesn't yeah. mean just when it suits me, but mm. all the time. Because on those occasions when it doesn't suit me and I think I can just cut a corner, but it doesn't matter because Mm. of all those other times I'm a good boy, Mm. that Mm. might be what some people notice and that might be Mm. what they take away. And Mm. I like the fact that you talk about vulnerability in the same Mm. domain as trust because Mm -hmm. there are two lot types of trust. There are two levels of trust. There's that, Mm -hmm. I trust you when you say you'll have that to me by five o'clock, you will. I trust Mm. that when you say that it will be of a high quality, it will be. I I trust these things about you because you've shown me that in the past. Mm. But then there's this second level of trust, which is vulnerability. And that Mm. says that you're my leader and I trust that with you I can be honest. Mm. Or you're my teammate and I trust that with you I can be honest and I can say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. I've Mm. never done this before. I don't know how to do this. I'm having a really Mm. bad week. I'm feeling Mm. under pressure. All of those type of things that we know are fantastic to be able to talk about in a, in a good mm. team environment, but we've all been in situations where it's just not okay to share like that. We're not allowed to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways mm-hmm. of vulnerability trust can be established in, in a team is, of course, for the leader to be vulnerable. And there is, yeah. there is, nothing, there is nothing terrible about a leader being honest that they're a human that they Mm. have strengths and weaknesses, that there are things that they're not very good at and can't Mm -hmm. do. There are weeks that they're not as productive as other Mm -hmm. weeks. It starts from the top. And if your leader Mm. is brave enough and and has enough self-awareness and confidence to be Mm. vulnerable in that way, then that's Mm -hmm. the type of thing that can rub off on the rest of the team. Absolutely it can. And, you know, it's I always say it's not about – vulnerability is not about – crying in front of your team members or sharing your deep, dark secrets, it can be as simple as saying, oh, I don't know, or, oh, I've never come across this before. What do you reckon we should do? Or, you know, something very simple to show that, you know, you're right, you are human. I'm human just like you and sometimes I don't have all the answers. And, you know, how can we work together to kind of figure it out? Because we're all adults and we all have really beautiful brains and together, you know, we can come up with some amazing possibilities. They're fantastic domains and I love the the two behaviors that are within each of them. I'll, I'll go through them mm. again. I am mm. an active leader. That's about being courageous and strong. I'm a directive mm. leader. That's about engineering the world around me. Remember the example of going for walks and mm. to have good conversations with your staff and I abdicate power. And the third mm. one is I'm a perceptive leader. I'm trust and trusted and I can be vulnerable. I, I love those. Now, one more question before mm. we sign off, Wendy. There was something mm. else in your book that I really liked, and that was about this fundamental attention error. And you quoted mm. Dr. Dark, uh, Dr. Mark Sherman, and that mm-hmm. is the idea, 
and you mm-hmm. have to listen as you have to listen to this and, and think about it mm-hmm. that we overestimate the effect of personality and underestimate the effect of situation. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what that means and how that plays out in our real life? Yes. So a very simple example is, you know, when you're driving to work and someone cuts you off because they're driving erratically. And so we automatically think, oh, what an idiot, you know, he's, you know, he's yeah, he's clearly a bad driver. And so yeah, we attribute it, yeah, we attribute it to his personality. Yep. But we never think, you know, he could have got a phone call from the hospital to say his son. His wife's in labour. Hospi- we were, yeah, or his wife's in labour. We never think about the situation that has put that person that in that. And it's, it happens in reverse. So we always attribute our stuff-ups to the situation that we're in, never about our personality or how we could have contributed to that. That's one of the great gulfs in understanding be- between individual mm. people, isn't it? And your Absolutely. example there is is is, is it's a, it's the best example you could possibly give because I do mm. that. You know, we all do that. Yes. Someone cuts me <laughs> off, I immediately write them off as a person, and I think you're a bad person. I hate you. Yes. And then, but if I yep. do it, I think, hey, well, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm, I'm just running really late right now. Sorry, I'm just you know, I'm not you know. We all know I'm not a bad person, of course. It's yeah. just that yeah. I'm late. But the other cars are looking at me thinking, I hate you as a person. You're a bad Mm. person. We we cut ourselves that slack, but we don't Mm. cut that slack for others. So that's the fundamental attrition error. And it's the the effect of overestimating overestimating personality and underestimating Mm -hmm. situation. I love it, Wendy. It's Mm -hmm. fantastic stuff. Look, we have run out Mm. of time. It has been such a pleasure talking to you and having you on the show. Thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. And that was Wendy Bourne. I love the three domains and the behaviours that reside within each. And what about that truth bomb that we were talking about towards the end? The fundamental attrition error that we overestimate the effect of personality and underestimate the effect of situation. Except in ourselves, of course, we usually cut ourselves slack that we don't afford the people around us. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Wendy on the Lessons Learn page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teams with an S dot guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye.